When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, this is Nathan James from Glorious, and you're listening to Jay Scott, the Hook Rocks Podcast. Everybody, what's going on? Good evening to you. Hope you're having a great day. Hope you're staying safe, staying healthy. I know the weather, especially like the Midwest to the north right now, has been absolutely brutal. I have seen snow reported on the news like in Malibu and Manhattan Beach in California. So maybe it's like a, a national, you know, USA thing where everyone's just getting crap weather right now. But we got bombarded with at least a foot of snow here over the weekend. And I know the East Coast, where my next guest is from, is going to get bombarded here. I know the snow is coming. I know, I think a little bit has already fallen, but I think more is on the way. And it is, you know, welcome to February. We're recording this on February 1st, so we are smack dab in the middle of winter. But spring is upon us, six weeks, seven weeks away. So let's be positive and let's uh, just continue to keep rolling here. Keep talking music and like to welcome in our next guest. She is a return guest. Always a pleasure to have her. She's great. She's got her own music blog and podcast herself, Metal from the Inside, and we'd like to welcome in Sydney Taylor. What's going on? How are you? Hey, Jay. Thank you uh, so much for having me again. It's been a, it's been a while. I think uh, it's still back in August, so it's always a blast uh, coming on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we do need to have you on more, and I know we're going to be doing that with the live stream that's coming up, and I know there's been some delays in that. Obviously, had a health issue here in December, and now I'm just kind of waiting for the website to be done, which I keep getting delays and delays on. So hopefully that'll be wrapped up here shortly so we can move forward because it's going to be really cool and really awesome, and I'm glad you're going to be a part of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think that, there's nothing I love more than talking to people about hard rock and heavy metal. So when you asked me, I was like, this sounds like just absolutely perfect because I mean, you know, to have people chime in too and just talking about music, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So I appreciate you all wanting me, wanting me to be a part of it. 
Yeah, and you know that's I, I love your your stuff. Your podcast is great. I mean, you just did a great interview with Joel and Turner. So, for those who want to hear an excellent interview by Sydney talking to Joe, it's it's a fantastic interview. You also talked with Michael Shanker recently, which was great too. So, good job, awesome job on that. And you know, for my listeners out there, you're missing out if you're not following Sydney. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it was a. It's been a really great start for the podcast in 2021, and you know, I, I started it back in February of last year, so kind of laying the groundwork last year, and uh, kind of like, you know, finally getting some really cool guests coming on. And uh, there's a lot more in the works and a lot more happening. So yeah, definitely uh, stay tuned. And if you love, you know, Jay and, and his podcast and his guests, you know, I think you might enjoy mine too. So I appreciate all the kind words; it means a lot. You're also doing some stuff with Sea of Tranquility too, which I love. I love his YouTube page, Peter Pardo. He's he's I love it. Yeah, he is great, and it's funny because um, I actually had gotten approached to do it. Um, I used to live in the Hudson Valley, so if any of you are familiar with Sea of Tranquility, we have this show every Monday called the Hudson Valley Squares, um, and I used to live in the Hudson Valley um, by. The chance, if any of you guys know that music venue, you know, talk, talking in a, the language of music, if any of you are familiar with that area. Um, and I used to go to this record store all the time where I used to live in my hometown uh, before I moved to Philadelphia, which is where I'm located now. And uh, one of the co-hosts on the Hudson Valley Squares owns that record store, Rock Fantasy, um, Pete and Keeler. And they approached me about doing it. And it was just one of those things that just kind of fell into my lap and uh, was totally unexpected, but it's just a blast. We uh, get on every Monday night. We're recording an episode later on this evening, um, and we just talk different topics and uh, about you know our favorite you know vocal performances or female vocalists or you know last week we did bad band decisions you know and uh, it's just a cool conversation. So uh, kind of similarly to uh, what the live stream you know is going to be like and talking about just music and metal and rock specifically. If you uh enjoy any of those topics i definitely recommend that you check that out because it's, uh, it's a lot of fun yeah his page is uh sea of tranquility on youtube i want to have pete as a guest so if you can put in a word for me i'd love to have him on the podcast oh yeah i'm sure he would love that i'm sure he's always uh he's always doing different things like that so i'll definitely reach out to him for you because uh, i think that he would absolutely love to come on yeah he's great i love i love that guy's show so awesome so here we are, another topic here on the Hook Rocks podcast. By the way, we are now part of Pantheon Podcast Music Platform, a bunch of music podcasts on one platform, kind of like a one-stop shop. So it's a great move here for the Hook Rocks. So if you have a chance to check out PantheonPodcast.com and follow them at Pantheon Pods on Twitter, everyone from Martin Pop- Popoff to Decibel Geek to my boys in Shout Out Loudcast. And, of course, the Hook Rocks, plus many more. You will definitely enjoy yourself if you're a music fan. So check all that stuff out as well. And it's time to dive into our topic, which is something I've always I've wanted to do when this show was first created, was talk more about bands and their importance. And I think we've done that, you know, with, with some bands. I think the last one we did was Iron Maiden back in the summer. And now we're going to do Dokken, which is a band that... I grew up with and I really enjoyed listening to one of the bands that I consider as part of my the beginnings of my journey in rock and roll. And I know you're a huge fan too as well. I mean, on the cover of your website, you're holding the picture of Tooth and Nail. 
which is another reason why you're awesome. And <laughs> Dokken to me is has always been a band that really never got their due. And yes, they were on some really big tours and they toured, you know, with, with some really big bands, namely like Van Halen on the Monsters of Rock. You know, they toured with Judas Priest. They toured with a lot of different people. But they were never a big headliner. They never could get over that hump into, you know, headlining arenas or, you know, hockey stadiums or basketball stadiums and, and what that, or basketball arenas, I should say. And my opinion with Dokken, and we're going to dive into their history, they've always been the band that really no one really knew what to do with, meaning they had the music that could place them on a tour with Judas Priest, when you think of their songs like Kiss of Death and you think of stuff, you know, off a of tooth and nail, very much more edgier and, and raw. And then you think of their harmonies in In My Dreams. You think of the power ballad alone again. They could very well be on a tour with Bon Jovi. So they were really yeah. hard to market. They really, you know, I don't I don't really know if PR companies or even their management company really kind of knew the angle to market them to the young teenager. And I think a lot of teenagers like them, but, you know, they they didn't have the big hit like, you know, Bon Jovi did, or they didn't have the loyal following like a priest did. You know, they they were kind of the in-between band. It doesn't take away from their greatness because their music is is exceptional. It's fantastic. But I always thought that they were just stuck in that middle where there was too much on one side and once in it and too much on the other where it was really hard for them to find a place. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's one of those things where, again, um, I'm not sure if people know, I, I like to say it. So people kind of know where I'm coming from perspective wise, but I am only 21. So um, kind of getting into music for me, I kind of came at it from a different perspective than getting to grow up with it um, while it was happening. You know what I mean? So, for me, Dawkins was always one of those bands that I knew about when I was younger, and you know maybe we'll get into a little bit of, about how I ended up discovering them and um, kind of my my own personal journey and, and loving their music. But I, at the time when I was becoming a fan, um, before I kind of really got into the history of them, I didn't realize at first that they weren't as big as I thought they were um, in the '80s. You know, I was always under the impression because I'd always known who they were um, in their music that, that they were as big as a Motley Crue or as big as a Death Leopard. Um, and then, you know, as I started to really get into their history and everything about them and the tours they did and, um, you know, everything that went along with the band, I really discovered that they weren't as big as I thought. Um, and for me, you know, at the, the time I was a huge fan, it was kind of very shocking to me to be like, oh, they aren't, they weren't that big. Um, but yeah, they had a lot of those tours, you know, with Aerosmith and uh, with Twisted Sister. They opened up in 86 and, you know, they, they were a part of these tours. But, yeah, I think that they they were just right at the cusp of, you know, kind of reaching that, going over that hump and, and getting into um, the, the big leagues, I guess you could say. Um, and, you know, as we know, we, we'll get into this too, I'm sure, about, you know, how the band ended and you know 87 back for the attack was kind of the last big record and they did you know beast from the east and everything but you know and then eventually the music changed and uh you know the band kind of broke apart but it's interesting because i think that they really did have the songs um and 
sometimes also I may be a little bit biased just because I love them so much. You know, I feel like that they were uh, at that level of Motley Crue or Def Leppard when it came to uh, the music that they were putting out. And in some instances, maybe even a little bit better of, of some of those bands sometimes. Uh, so it really was shocking to me when I discovered that they weren't as big as they were, uh, just because I feel like they had an advantage because they could fit into so many different kind of subgenres. They could do the power ballads, like you mentioned. They could do the heavier stuff. You know, you listen to Tooth and Nail, which is probably their heaviest record. I definitely could fit in with the Judas Priest, like you mentioned. Um, but yeah, it was it was weird for me to realize that they weren't as large as they were when I was kind of discovering them. No, I agree with everything you're saying. I think musically, they were one of the better bands to come out of that period of music. You know, when you think of the bands from the 80s, you think of Motley Crue and Rat and Quiet Riot, all great bands. But musically, I think Dokken was a step ahead of those bands in terms of musicianship, in terms of songwriting. Listen to their harmonies in In My Dreams. You know, listen to that. I mean... That's and they could they could match that live too as well. They could they could do that, and again they had the power ballad. I've often said that if that song alone again came out after Home Sweet Home, I think I think the landscape for Dokken may have been different. Whereas they were that was one of the very first power ballads to be released. It was kind of along the lines of Still Loving You by Scorpions. Where I think if, if that yeah. came out after Home Sweet Home because of the explosion of Home Sweet Home, I think it would have been a lot bigger. Um, in, in terms of just again, you know, the 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 band itself. I know they had a lot of tension in the band. I know there was a lot of well documented instances of George and Don not getting along, and it, some of some of that still continues to this day. Although I think they're in a better place now, which is great. As far as them touring again, I know George Lynch was going to be opening up as Lynch Mob. The band Lynch Mob was going to be opening up for Dokken before the pandemic hit. And then they were going to, and I think they did do a handful of shows where they did join each other on stage for an encore and played two or three Dokken songs. So that's really cool. Now, will they do a full-fledged tour? They did the shows in Japan and I think South Dakota four or five years ago, I want to say. Um, And that was a treat for Doc and fans to see that, but I don't think they will be reuniting, especially now Mick Brown is retired. Uh, I think physically he just can't do it anymore, but you know, getting back to their heyday and getting back to when their peak of their popularity, I do think that you are right. I mean, they musically, they were so much better than a lot of bands. Um, I think, you know, harmonizing when you think of the bands from that era, in the MTV generation with the Headbangers Ball and the hard rock movement, there's only really a few bands that could match them in terms of their back background vocals. Of course, Van Halen. And then there was Bon Jovi and Def Leppard. Maybe there's a few others I can't think of, but in terms of the the scope of where they were at, I do think Dokken was right up there with them. Um, and then, of, of course, the fact that they could never punch through and be a headliner also affected their popularity. And again, that goes back to how, how to market them, how to reach an audience. And I think they reached enough to be that opening act, but they just didn't have that hit that would overcome all that and propel them into an arena, a headlining arena band. Yeah. I think something too, um, 
talking about how they really were able to fit in so many different genres is I feel like, you know, obviously, um, you know, the mid early mid eighties happened, you know, the kind of thrash metal movement happened, um, and, and all that stuff. And I feel like, you know, Doctrine was one of those bands that could appeal to even fans of, of like the thrash movement and the heavier bands. Cause I feel like at the time, a lot of the image that was happening at that time, you know, turned a lot of people off. And I've talked to a lot of, uh, you know, old school metal fans and, so a lot of them, uh, you know, don't seriously love a band like Motley Crue or, um, you know, I'm talking specifically more about like the Shout Out the Devil period. And even as they got a little bit more commercial as the years went on, um, you know, they, they weren't a big fan of Motley Crue, but they liked Dawkins. You know, Dawkins had a little bit of an image in, you know, 85. You know, it was just the time you had the, the clothes, right? And, you know, you obviously had the big hair, but they were also not a huge band to go on and put on a ton of makeup or, or, you know, anything like maybe Motley Crue was doing in like 1983. I mean, I think that that also appealed to a lot of different people um, that maybe weren't so much into the image of the bands at the time. You know, I, I love the image of some of those bands. So personally, as a fan, it doesn't really matter to me, but you know, at that point in time, a lot of people, you know, Oh, they're just trying to, whatever the music isn't as good. You know, they're just trying to, publicity, whatever, blah, 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 whatever the reason might have been. Um, but I think it's interesting because I think that they did have that opportunity to appeal to fans that maybe uh, weren't gravitating towards a lot of the bands on the Sunset Strip at that time for, you know, whatever reason that they had. Um, so that's something, too, that I thought is kind of interesting as I've been talking to different people who love this band but maybe aren't so big into kind of the more image-focused bans as well. And George Lynch has, has been documented with saying that he didn't like the direction of the image it was going once under lock and key. He talks about that album cover. He talks about the outfits and the sequence and outfits that he was very much against. He did not like that at all. And, you know, depending on who you talk to in the band, you know, some people say it was Don driving that. Some people say it was the management company that was driving that. I do think you're right. I do think that, they had the music to kind of stand by themselves and be their own thing. And I think once they started to do that, they kind of fell into the the shadow of the other bands that were very more image conscious. And, and as we know, that decade became more about the image as the years ticked by into the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, definitely. Um, they definitely could stand on their own musically. I mean, they had a little bit of that image. Um, you know, you look at the Alone Again video, and I mean, it was part of the time. But I feel like they definitely weren't as as into it as the Molly Crew. And I'm using that just because I feel like if they were such a, um, they were just kind of like a, a, a prime example of that. You know, the, I'm thinking of the gatefold to shout at the devil. You know, and they're all they're dressed in the spikes and the leather and the makeup and uh, you know, all that stuff. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I, I just think that so many people were just so turned off by that and I think that that exposed you know there, there are people who don't like this type of band who love Dawkins um, and I would have thought that kind of turning you know touching on how they weren't as big you know I would have thought that maybe that appeal might have made them a little bit bigger so it's interesting that even with that you know uh, kind of advantage if you want to say advantage um, that they still didn't you know reach that kind of bigger popularity that they were so close to getting to the history of the band is really interesting. When you talk about Dokken and you learn a little bit about where they came from, 
I think they're all product from the Sunset Strip. Obviously, Don Dawkins' history on the Sunset Strip. We know George Lynch's history, of, of course, being a, I'm putting up the air quotes right now, a rival of Eddie Van Halen, a friendly rival, um, as we know, uh, with the bands, the boys and Exciter. But Don first formed a band in 1976. It was called Airborne, and it featured Bobby Blotzer and Ron Crossier, who Juan later played on Breaking the Chains, and Bobby, of course, went on a rat, which Juan then, I think, left Dokken after the release of Breaking the Chains, and joined the band joined the band rat so there's a connection there with the sunset strip but don really had trouble kind of hanging on to a lot of members of of the bands that he was trying to put together um i know he had to go to europe to germany that's why dockins always had a huge following in germany because of the history with don and the band there and he had some other players you know some people may know the names like greg leone and gary holland um Interesting tidbit about those two guys. They both played in Sweet 19, which was the band that also featured Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. And I also believe the drummer from Armored Saint played in that band too, I want to say. I might be wrong on that, but I think that's also correct too as well. Um, so they they kind of, you know, I don't want to say messed around a little bit with going back and forth to Germany, trying to find a record deal. Um, they met Michael Wagner, which ended up producing their debut record, um, Breaking the Chains. And the interesting thing about Don Dockin is originally there was talk about him uh, replacing Kloss in Scorpions before the Blackout album. And he ended up actually singing backup on that album, but Kloss was having some difficulties with his voice. I think he was having throat surgery. And there was a possibility at the time that Don was going to replace him because they didn't know if he was going to be able to sing again. So there's an interesting history and connection with the Scorpions and Dokken. And I know they've shared the stage a few times in their career, namely the Monster Rock that also featured Van Halen and Metallica and Kingdom Come. But that's a little interesting note about the beginnings of Dokken. Yeah, he. Uh, it's really interesting because I've always wanted to hear those demos that he did because Don went over to Germany, right? Um, he had ended up, I think he had trying to remember exactly what had happened, how he met um, the Scorpions manager. I think it was, uh, oh, I remember. Uh, I think his, the Scorpions manager um, saw him with his band Airborne at the Whiskey um, and basically saw his vocals, talked to him about going over to uh, Germany, which at that point, you know, we, as you kind of mentioned, you know, uh, George Lynch uh, and Mick Brown didn't really weren't into joining Dawkins at the time. Yeah, he had a convince them as time went on um obviously when he got the record deal but yeah he'd gone over to germany and sang the demos and i think you might be able to find a couple of them online but they aren't very accessible um and i've always really wanted to hear what you know don sounded like singing you know no one like you i love the scorpions um and he did all of the demos for that album um so they're out there they're they're out there somewhere whether they're online or not um and i've always wanted to hear what the full album sounded like uh, but yeah, they've stayed. I know that they've stayed friends over the years, him and Klaus. And uh, Don sometimes comes on stage, uh, obviously not now during <laughs> the pandemic, but a couple years ago he would, you know, come on stage every once in a while when he was in town and, you know, saying no one like you and Klaus or whatever. So it's really interesting that whole dynamic um, and how that ended up. Just how, like you said, the, the beginning of that band happened. 
Um, even then, it felt like there might have been a little bit of, of tension between Don and George, you know, trying to get him to join the band and um, maybe how that led into some tension later on as the group got a little bit bigger. Um, but yeah, they, they had a really interesting start. And uh, I think that his, uh, you know, guesting for that album, you know, at least the demos was, was something that uh, was just a cool fact and a little part of the history that I feel like a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, that would be interesting, you know, how, how things would have been different had Don ended up being the singer of Scorpions and Doc and yeah. would have never happened. And it would be interesting to see what would have happened with George and Mick and Jeff. And you, know, you mentioned the tension between Don and George from the very beginning, and it's very similar to David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen, you know, the tension that existed between them. And I, and I think that whenever you have a situation like that, it does create beautiful music it tension is able to release something through the stress something beautiful i mean you i mean i don't know if van halen would have sounded the same if there wasn't that constant push and pull between eddie and david and i don't know if dokken would have had the same sound if there wasn't that push and pull between don and george and i think now as i mentioned in the beginning of this show that they're in a better place now but you call it youthful exuberance or whatever, you know, whatever, ten- however tensions arise in a band. There's so many different dynamics to a band that it's just really interesting to see how they were able to coexist for as long as they did with that tension. Yeah, it's funny. I just had a conversation with one of uh, my friends about this um, and just the, the tension that had happened with the band and, and Don and George. And it's funny because I, you know, looking back on it and obviously hearing about this, this kind of feud that always went, went on. And, you know, you look at magazine covers from that time period and, you know, hit parader and, you know, all, all these different magazines that, you know, had covering those feuds and all this stuff. And, you know, part of me also wonders, you know, I definitely think that there was some tension there. Um, there was, you know, some frustrations and, and what have you. But I also probably wonder, you know, how much of that was built upon by the press, built upon by the label and having this, you know, thing that people talked about. And, you know, even in later interviews, I've heard a little bit about that. And, you know, I I have old copies of magazines and articles and, you know, about them talking about this, this tension that, I don't know, seems to be there a little bit, but I think that it was really built upon um, and exaggerated by, the press and, and by the management, um, you know, obviously there was something there. I mean, you look back as, as the band progressed a little bit, you know, obviously everybody kind of, you know, has a little bit of an ego as time goes on. And, you know, you look at the name of the band, the name of the band was Dawkins and you could definitely see that maybe there was a little bit of resentment there of some way of, you know, uh, the fact that it was Don's name and, you know, Don used the fact that it was his name and, you know, Maybe George didn't like the fact that it was his name and he was using, you know, the fact that uh, the band was his last name as, as an excuse for X, Y, or Z. Um, that could definitely be, you know, a possibility of, of the reason that there was a little bit of tension there as, you know, the band got bigger and personalities grew or whatever. Uh, but I definitely think that it was exaggerated upon by the media. You know, it's, it's exaggerated upon and, and the guys are reading about it and people are putting stuff in their heads and, um, I definitely agree with what you said, though, about the fact that that tension, you know, can create such 
such beautiful pieces of music. And I feel like with Dawkins especially, all four of those guys seem so different when you really take a look at their personalities individually. Um, you know, you, you had Don and George who, again, were maybe a little bit of the, bit of the bigger personalities in that band. You know, you have somebody like Jeff Tolson who was a big personality, but also just, I feel like, loved, I love Jeff. He loved writing his music and, and, you know, performing, whatever. And, you know, Mick, who obviously they called him Wild Mick Brown, he was, you know, whatever. But I feel like they each had such a unique personalities and so different from one another. I feel like you know, stick all those people in a band together and, you know, eventually there's going to be a little bit of frustration there, you know, as, as with any band, you know, you're living with these people essentially on the road, you're with them nonstop, you know, you're in this, um, this era, especially then of having to put out a new record, having to tour, having to write all the time, you know, that was a period of having to put out a record, you know, once every year, pretty much. Um, and you're basically living on the road with them. And obviously you're going to have a little bit of frustration, but I think that, you know, with that frustration, you're hundred percent correct that they created some of the best music, you know, that, that little bit of conflict, you know, and friction really developed some great chemistry between all of them. I don't know if it was press related. I mean, obviously maybe some of it was, but Don has been candid over the last, you know, several years about having no, no desire to do a tour with the other original members of the band because of the experiences that he's had previous to that. And he's come out and said that multiple times. And I don't want to get into like the, what specific things and what things he mentioned, because there's always two sides to every story, you know, and you know, I, I respect all those guys in there. And I'm sure there's a lot of things that when you hear one interview versus another interview, you know, there's always, there's always the thing in the middle that, you know, maybe this is the reason why that happened or whatever. So I do want to be respectful with that, but I don't know if it was so much the press because it has been, I mean, I mean, I remember the one album or there was a, it wasn't an album, but it was Don. I don't know if it was caught on video or something where Don was talking with Sebastian Bach about how his own band was trying to kick him out of this band that had oh, his yeah. name on it. And I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember that. And, I, you know, God, that had to be 10-plus years ago that that happened. So I know maybe they've mentioned that in the past about it being, you know, part of the press, but maybe that's just a way to have them not answer questions about some of the things that have happened. But like I said, I do think now, present day, I think they're in a better place with each other. Um, I do think that, you know, there's, you know, as they, as time goes on and people get older, you know, they become less confrontational and maybe a little bit more understanding and maybe willing to, you know, wash things under the bridge or put things under the bridge, so to speak, um, or put water under the bridge, I should say. And I, I just think that maybe that's where they're at, where, you know, what I really don't want to answer any questions about this anymore because we're all in a good place together. You know, we all, you know, did that tour in Japan where they seem to all get along. I don't think the Lynch Mob docking tour would have happened if there was still that tension or still something they couldn't get over. So I'd like to think that things are trending in a better place. Who knows what will happen? Maybe they'll do a small tour, maybe a couple one-off shows here in the States because I know a lot of their fans were hoping for that, uh, or the shows in Japan happened, I should say. So 
fingers are crossed. Obviously, this pandemic has paused everything for a year, but um, and I know George talked candidly about doing the um, the Harley Fest Sturgis in on the last time he was on the show. So who knows? Who knows what the future will do, of Dokken will be? I know Don has had some health issues. I think he did have some cancer that he's overcome. I think you know now he's got the situation with his arm and his hand as a result of some surgery that he had on his back. So hopefully that's getting better. I haven't heard an update in a while from him, but you know, only the Dokken fans can dream of that. Maybe someday, you know, I know they did that one acoustic show where I think it was called one night live or something like that, which I thought was absolutely phenomenal back in like the nineties, mid nineties. I want to say, um, and uh, I just thought that was tremendous that when they when they did that. Yeah, they they did that one night live, and they did do the one show um, in South Dakota, I believe. Um, they did one show in the states when they did that uh, short reunion in 2016. And yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen things over the the past couple of months about you know maybe not having a big interest in doing a tour. Um, and I mean, I definitely do think that maybe more in the 80s, that feud was a little bit more manufactured starting out. I think it definitely, as the years went on and we got into the late 90s, early 2000s or whatever, or whatever um, that the the tension was, was pretty real there. Um, but I think maybe possibly, you know, when they were kind of starting out and getting a little bit, getting a little bit of notoriety, you know, maybe a little bit of that tension was, um, was manufactured to to some degree, you know, I think that there was definitely something there, but, you know, as the years have gone on, yeah, you're completely right. I think that they've definitely uh, mellowed out a little bit and, you know, kind of, you know, you said, as you get older, you kind of realize what's important and what's not important and, you know, what deserves attention and energy. Uh, but I would love to see them do something tour wise. I mean, um, again, I go back to the fact that I am only 21 and I never had the opportunity to really see them. I mean, uh, back in 2016, I, I couldn't make it to South Dakota, and I certainly couldn't make it to Japan to see any of those shows. Um, you know, part of me is always hoping that they'll they'll do something uh, that's a little bit maybe of a reunion. Um, to me, it was a shock when Mick Brown left. Um, it's, it's funny because I was actually seeing them at M3 in 2019. Um, obviously, the current the current uh, version of Dawkins with John Levin and a uh, Chris McCarvel and now BJ uh, Zampa, I believe, is drumming um, in place of Mick Brown. Um, but that was the show that he pretty much they announced that he was leaving the band. And I mean, I had no idea. You know, they kind of announced that he wasn't playing, and uh, you know, he kind of left a little bit suddenly. Uh, so it was it was shocking to see him leave. And I hope that he's doing okay and is you know doing what he needs to do. You know, it's. I look at it this way with any band, you know, not just these guys, you know, Alice Cooper is another one of my favorites. I'm so thankful that these guys are still doing this at, you know, 60, 70 years old, you know, I think Don Dawkins is going to be like 66 or something. And it's amazing to me that they're still out there doing it. So, you know, if Nick Brown needs to take a break and, and not do this, you know, for the time being, or whether that's for the rest of, you know, his career or whatever, you know, do what you need to do at this point they don't really owe us anything you know they put out such wonderful music that to me is a soundtrack of my life but i always hope and pray you know as as we all do sometimes you know i would love to see a show like that happen um 
it would mean a lot to me as a Dawkins fan to be able to see those four people who created some of my most favorite music, you know, play together. But, you know, it's, they, they did that thing in 2016 and, you know, if that's all they do, that's, that's all they do. And, uh, it's cool that we did get that live DVD out of it as well. So it's, it's there for us to watch for many years to come if we want to. Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, I know a lot of it's had to do with Jeff Pilson's schedule with him being in Foreigner. And Foreigner is yeah. a great gig. I mean, you can't pass something like that up. But I don't know how much longer Foreigner has with Mick Jones. You know, that's a different topic for another day. Yeah. But, Jeff, if you're listening, you still look good. <laughs> you're still in good shape. You can do this, man. You can do this. And, and Mick Brown... I know you may have some physical ailments, and I know life's been tough on you because you're such a physical, pounding drummer. But hopefully, you can find it in your within yourself and heal up and and do this tour. And and of course, you know George is always playing, and Don's had his physical, you know, like I said, his his physical health has has been a concern. So hopefully, we can get you know at least a handful of shows left at some point. Hopefully, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible. When I think back of the albums by Dokken, Breaking the Chains obviously was their debut. And of course, you know, it's got the title track, which was a big song. I always love the song Young Girls, which was a great track that I always enjoyed. Felony is another great one, too, as well. We go into Tooth and Nail, which is regarded by Dokken fans as their best. It has everything on that album, and it has just incredible guitar riffs, incredible hooks. The song "Into the Fire" we talk about, you know, background harmonies and 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 you know, three four part harmonies into the fire is just absolutely amazing. Just got lucky. One of the best tracks, my favorite track on the album is "Heartless Heart." The way that merges with or comes right after "Just Got Lucky." It's got the power ballad with Alone Again, which is just, again, another big song for them that is an easily recognizable track by Dokken. But the album is filled with just great songs. I mean, the title track, Tooth and Nail, Don't Close Your Eyes, Bullets to Spare is absolutely incredible. When Heaven Comes Down, Turn On the Action, just a great, great album. And another thing, too, I want to add before we forget, all these songs really are the whole band collaborating. You know, most of them either have all the band members or three of the band members. I know there's only a couple that maybe have two, but, you know, that's really something about them too as well where they were able to kind of come together and write music. But Tooth and Nail, I mean, again, this is regarded as the best docking album. Yeah, Tooth and Nail is not personally my favorite, which I... I may get some <laughs> heat for that. Um, it's not my personal favorite, but I, I love that album. Um, when Heaven Comes Down was actually, I made that my intro track to my first radio show when I was in college. That was the what what was the beginning of my show. But I mean, I think that was definitely the first record where they were really getting their groove. I mean, obviously on Breaking the Chains, um, Horn from Rat was playing. So you know, Jeff Pilson didn't really play in any of those songs at the time. I'm usually a video for Breaking the Chains, of course, but uh, Tooth and Nail was the first, you know, album where, where Jeff came in. Um, we had that classic Doc and Line up, and I think that they really got their sound in super strong on that record. Um, and it's definitely their heaviest, in my opinion. Um, 
you know, you have Kiss of Death later on or Back for the Attack, but that, you know, Back for the Attack as a whole is, you know, not, not a super heavy record per se. So I, I definitely say that Tooth and Nail is, is their heaviest. And, uh, you know, man, I mean, you know, got, just got lucky. There's so many different great songs there. Just got lucky, you know, Into the Fire, which is just, you know, one of my favorite Dawkins tracks. I mean, if you're a Dawkins fan, it's probably one of your favorites as well. Um, it's a great, it's a great, great record, and I think that they really got their groove going on with that one. Yeah, I mean, Tooth and Nail has that raw energy that a lot of young bands have, and as we go into Under Lock and Key, which really for me, Under Lock and Key is my favorite Dawkins album. Um, it, Under Lock and Key is a little bit more polished. It's a little bit more. What's the word I'm trying to say? Um, I guess polished is probably the, the the correct word. It has a lot of elements on on this album that a lot of rock fans. But this is kind of that example where, again, you have the lightning strikes again until the living end. Metal riffs, metal songs that fans of Judas Priest and Dio and all those bands love, and then you've got. In my dreams and will the sunrise and it's not love, you know, with with the Bon Jovi Def Leppard fans. You've got a mid tempo rocker, the Hunter, which was originally going to be a uh, instrumental, according to Don Dakin. Yeah, um, which is probably my favorite track on the album. But I think there's a missed opportunity, and it kind of goes back to what I talked about with Alone Again. I still think Slipping Away should have been released as a single. Because I think with in terms of the power ballad era of that, in the 86 was kind of like the peak or going up the mountain at that time. And I think they really missed out on not releasing Slipping Away as a single. It's really funny that you mention The Hunter because if anybody follows me on social media, they're probably like, oh God, this girl won't shut up about the song. Um, Great song. But that was a song that made me, that song, that was a song that made me a Dawkins fan. Um, I'll tell the story really quick, but I, you know, like you said, I, I kind of grew up listening to Dawkins, um, you know, because of my parents and listening to this music. And I was really getting into listening to records and, and vinyl. I was starting to collect vinyl and, you know, I went in and I would look at all of my parents' old records and I had the, you know, was able to pick any, any of the records that I wanted because my parents weren't listening to them anymore. Um, on any turntable, I'm the only one my family who owns the turntable now, but I was able to take pretty much every, any record I wanted and uh, under lock and key was there. And it's funny because I had had it in my collection for a while and I hadn't really listened to it. Cause it was just when I was kind of really getting into this type of music. Um, and I put it on and, you know, I, I had known uh, on chain the night and the hunter came on and I, that is to me, the moment that I fell in love with this band when I heard the Hunter for the first time or the first time that I knew I was listening to Hunter because I'm sure that I heard it at some point when I was younger but the first time that I had heard that you know on my own volition voluntarily I put this album on and to this day if you had to if you said Sydney you, know, you have to pick one song that describes what that what that time period of 80s metal sounded like you know like if you just had to pick one song um, I would pick the Hunter every single time um, I love that song. Probably my favorite song of all time. Um, and that's why that's one of the reasons I'm so partial to under lock and key as a whole, because I, I love that song. And um, I think that they, 
again, this is their, their second record with Jeff and this, this classic lineup. And I, you know, they were, had that raw energy on tooth and nail and they were kind of really getting into uh, the flow of firm writing and, and what their image was as a band and what, you know, just who they were as a group together. Um, and I, it's funny you mentioned that about slipping away because that's actually one of my least favorite songs on the record. Um, and I used to like it a lot more. And I think nowadays I prefer jaded heart a little bit more than I do over slipping away. Uh, but you have a fair point. I think that if they did release a ballad off of that, they might've been a little bit, it might've given them a little bit more recognition for this record. You know, I know that they had videos for the hunter, obviously they had videos for my dreams. It's not love. Um, I also want to mention don't lie to me on this record because I feel like that's such an underrated stock and gem. It's, great song one of my favorite songs on this record um and i feel like that even could have been a single as well um and could definitely fit in line with any of the singles that they did have on this record no i agree i I think you know don't lie to me was is a great track will the sunrise is an awesome song too jaded heart or slipping away you know at that point i do think they really needed to capitalize on that era um and who knows what the motivations of the band were at that time um, and if, you know, if they wanted to, or maybe management resisted or maybe management wanted to, and they resisted, who knows, but it's a fantastic album. And it is just for me, you know, when you hear the opening to unchain the night and, you know, George goes into playing and, and this is the, the album I think where really, where George really defined his tone, whereas tooth and oh, nail yeah. was more of a raw sounding George Lynch. I think George was able to really kind of hone in his tone on this album and to back for the attack, which later went to Lynch Mob and Wicked Sensation, um, because I really think that his guitar playing on this, although I think, you know, Tooth and Nail and some of the stuff on that album is quintessential to any George Lynch fan. I do, I do like, there's something about this album, I just think that George is just, his playing is just fantastic. Yeah, his tone on this record is is amazing. And I mean, I know a lot of people often cite, you know, The Hunter as being one of his best solos, and it's one of my favorite Georgian solos as well. Uh, but yeah, I think that this is really a record where he really started to get his, his sound down. You know, obviously, um, he became more regarded as kind of a guitar a guitar hero as the, the years went on, you know, you know, doing Mr. Scary on Back for the Attack and all this stuff, but this record for sure I feel like he had so many different solos that really really shine um at just moments um you know you mentioned that chain of the night yeah there's when you feel that that big riff come in you know you have kind of this slower intro and then there's this kind of that riff kind of start the record um it's it's fantastic and then you know tooth and nail uh the title track that's another one of my favorite George Lynch solos um and you can see a little bit of what was to come on under lock and key in in that playing on that record like you mentioned uh, but yeah, I think that this this really was where he he kind of solidified that that tone. It's you know very again I mentioned you know if I had to pick one song you know pick the hunter is kind of everything that was like that eighties you know metal uh, kind of scene at that time. And I think that that kind of tone and distortion that he had uh, was something that kind of really defined uh, I feel like that time period in a lot of different ways because you know that I think that he just had a really big part in that in my opinion personally. I agree. No, I, I think, you know, like I said, this this is this really sets up the next album, which is Back for the Attack. And, you know, George kind of continues with his tone and his 
awesome playing on you know the first track of Back for the Attack, which is Kiss of Death. When I think of this album, I think of being 12 years old and my brother, who was a huge Dokken fan, having this album in his room with all his friends and me being allowed to stay in his room with his friends but having to sit in the corner, like away from everybody because I wasn't cool enough. But just being able to <laughs> experience that that new album, that new release, as they absorbed it, you know, my older brother and his friends, and I heard it for the first time, has always meant something to me. Um, It just, I can still kind of smell the atmosphere of that room and kind of everyone's reaction because it had just everything on this record. And the only thing that, I I don't consider it my favorite Dokken album, but that doesn't mean I don't like it because I love this album. But... uh, it just, I think the emotional connection for me comes with Under Lock and Key, but this album is just really solid all the way around. I mean, of course, like I mentioned Kiss of Death, which had a topic that not a lot of people were singing about at the time. The song is about HIV and AIDS, and not a lot of people knew that, and not a lot of people from their era, from bands, their contemporaries, were singing about subject matter like this. So that was a little different. And, of course, the song Prisoner, Night by Night, is one of my favorite tracks of all time. Stand in the Shadows, Heaven Sent, which is, I know some people call it a ballad, but I consider it a, you know, a, a blues track, if anything. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I Heaven Sent's one of my favorite songs off of this, this record. Um, and I mean, I definitely can see that it is a little bit, I, I don't want to say, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit softer than, than some of the songs on the record, you know, Kiss of Death and, and everything like that, but I feel like, yeah, it's got a little bit of a bluesy edge to it. Um, it's not, I definitely wouldn't describe it as a power ballad by any means. Um, you know, there, there are a couple different, I, I'd even have a, you know, like Stop Fighting Love is more of a like power ballad than, you know, having descent. Um, but yeah, it's definitely got a bluesy edge to it. And I think that George Lynch um, always, you know, it's, it's interesting, his influences and everything like that and just, you know, how, how you know, strong blues is obviously tied in with rock and its history and, and metal as, as the years progress, you know. And it's interesting how that comes out in that song because it can definitely, like you mentioned, had definitely has a bluesy edge to it that uh, I think, yeah, definitely can be mistaken a little bit for a power ballad because it's not as heavy, you know, it's not as riff-oriented, I guess, per se. Um, but I love that song. It's one of my favorites off of that record. Um, and it's, it's got Dream Warriors on it for all of my... <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street fans, uh, you know, Dream Warriors, which is really funny. Um, I saw Dawkins for the first time when I, I feel so annoying when I say stuff like this. Cause I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm seven. I'm like, oh, like <laughs> people are always like, I, I make them feel old and I hate it. Cause I wish I could have seen these, these bands back in, in uh, their prime. But I saw Dawkins for the first time when I was seven. I saw them with Box and Poison. And it's funny because at the time I was, only seven so I wasn't really like diving into bands on my own at seven years old yet but uh, I loved Dream Warriors I loved that song uh, it was like one of my favorites again you know my parents would play this music and I remember I saw them and they didn't play it and I'm so mad that they didn't play it because um, <laughs> I love that song so much um, so that's like a song that's you know obviously one of their bigger hits on the record but reminds me of just you know loving Dokken when I was younger before I even you know, kind of discovered them when I was, you know, as an adult music fan as I got older. Um, so I love Dream Warriors, honestly, just like such a docking classic. 
the music video is great. I mean, I'm a horror fan too. So to, you know, have those tied in, it's funny. Both of my favorite artists had a song with like a horror movie, you know, uh, Dawkins with Nightmare on Elm Street. And then I love Alice Cooper and he did uh, Friday the 13th. So both of my favorite uh, artists did, you know, horror movie collaborations. So I love Dream Warriors, Burning Like a Flame, a little bit more commercial for them at that time, but I love that song too. Stop Fighting Love, Night by Night, like you mentioned, Standing in the Shadows. We have uh, a Scary, which I mentioned is the instrumental that George does. Um, it's just, it's a definitely a really solid record for sure. Yeah, I agree. And of course, it also has the iconic instrumental, Mr. Scary, which yeah. is what George Lynch is known for. I mean, when people talk about George, they, t- they often mention that in the same sentence when they're discussing him. But, you know, this album, again, you know, has a lot more of a mature sound, you know, whereas Breaking the Chains was more kind of a band trying to find its way. Tooth and Nail is more of that raw energy of those guys coming together. Underlock and Key is like a band maturing, and Back for the Attack is a band that's grown up, if if you kind of want to yeah. kind of phrase it that way or look at it that way. Dream Warriors has always been a difficult song for me. It's a song that I love. I, I love the song. However, there's always that case to be made that a band is popular because of the wrong song. And yeah. I, I think... Dokken falls into that with Dream Warriors, kind of similar to how Extreme falls into that with More Than Words. You know, they broke with the wrong song because I think the difference is, is Extreme's More Than Words really doesn't define their music, whereas Dream Warriors does define Dokken's music, but I think the video, I don't know if I, I think calling it Spinal tapish is a little too much, but I just think it 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 kind of gives it kind of they kind of became a parody of themselves in that video. And when I don't think that's a true representation of who Dokken was in terms of, and I think it kind of sells them short as the musicians and the band that they were. It's just my I love the song, but I think the video does a, does a disservice to them. Yeah, I mean, for them, for that to be their bit, I completely agree. I mean, I, again, I love the song because it it brings me back to a, a time in my childhood where I loved that song, and um, it's, it's by no means my favorite. You know, obviously, I you know talked about the Hunter, and I have had a million other favorite Dawson songs before, probably Dream Warriors. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny that that song is is really kind of what defines them at that point in time. And again, that video, that movie is so cheesy it's so cheesy i you know i knew it because of dawson at first and i had gone back and um you know when i was really getting to the fans you know i kind of went back and watched it and it's it's so bad um it's <laughs> it's one of those movies that's so just it it's just so bad it's good but still not really and you know obviously they use like pieces of the movie and the video and, and it was the whole thing and um yeah, I mean, I I don't think that it's a song that is a, the defining Dawson track for me. Um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely not the song that I think should represent them as a as a whole as a band. Um, you know, obviously they wrote it for the soundtrack. You know, wouldn't be surprised if they they wrote it. They wanted to be a part of that, obviously, to get a little bit more notoriety at the time. But yeah, I completely agree. I don't think that that is the defining Dawson track. It's not their strongest track by any means. Um, it's got a really catchy chorus. It's exactly what you want a hit to be, you know, uh, which 
probably also p- part of the writing and you know point of that song. Um, they wrote about the subject matter of the movie, so it was written you know specifically for the movie. Um, yeah, so not not their strongest track by any means. There's you know uh, a dozen songs on this this record, uh, you know, back for the attack that I would pick more so to be a defining docking track than um, than Dream Warriors, you know. And it's funny, you're looking at the subject matter in these songs, and you mentioned, you know, uh, Kiss of Death being about, you know, HIV and AIDS, which again, like you mentioned, not something that a lot of people were singing about then. You know, your docking obviously had its fair track of love songs, and, you know, especially too on this record of, like, you know, love lost, girl lost, get girl back, you know, that type of format, as many of those bands did at the time. But in 1987, to be singing about you know, HIV and AIDS was something that a lot of people weren't doing. Um, and you look at the track listing, you know, you have such a deep, lyrically, you know, heavy song like that. And then you have Dream Warriors, which is like about Freddy Krueger. <laughs> and it's like the parallels are, you know, just kind of very different. You know, you're starting out the album with Kiss of Death and you're ending with Dream Warriors. But I mean, it's still a fun song. And I, I totally know what you mean. I, I love that song. And it brings me back to personally my childhood, which is why I love it so much. Uh, but yeah, not the defining Dawkins and track by any means to me either. Yeah, I think for a lot of casual fans, it's the first song that they think of when when they think of Dawkins. I think right. their defining songs are uh, is either "Alone Again," "In My Dreams," or "Into the Fire." I think those are the three that really define Dokken. Of course, there's songs like "The Hunter" and there's songs like "Just Got Lucky" and those songs as well. But I think when you're talking about if you were to give a song to someone that's never heard Dokken before and in my dreams would be mine. Cause I think it, I think it kind of captures everything that Dokken was about. It's obviously one of their most popular yeah. songs. Doesn't mean it's their best song, but I think that just kind of captures the, the band um, alone again, of course is great. And, and the, you know, into the fire is another great one too, as well. But after back for the attack, we go into their live album, which is, Beast from the East, which is recorded in Japan. Dokken's always had that connection with Japan, obviously, as we talked about. And it also features a studio song, Walk Away, which at the time was their last single as a band. Because after this release, or I think even before this release, um, they broke up. And I think yeah. I think they released this. I've heard be- rumors. Yeah, I think they released this because they heard- had it. But yeah, I think I don't know what happened. Yeah, I've had rumors that they were recording they did a video for that song. I'm not sure we this, so nobody quote me on this. I think, I, I'm not sure if I read this or heard this in an interview or, or something. I believe that they actually had to record that video separately other than the few band shots that were there because they were just, it was just so far gone of like wanting to be with each other or anything. Um yeah, so I, I, I feel like I've heard, I, and again, I could be wrong, so if I am wrong, somebody let me know, but I'm pretty sure I read that they had to record that separately just because the tensions at that time were really high, and you know, obviously that was their last single, so they recorded pretty much, if you look at the video, like there's not a lot of scenes where they're together, they're separate, so um, I think that's an interesting fact that they were just so not, not into, into it anymore at that time that they had to re- record that separately. That's interesting you say that because I've often thought the same thing. I'm like, you know, there's not a lot of shots of these guys together. And I, I wonder how it was edited or if they even were 
in fact, together. I think the only shot where all four bands are in the same frame is the helicopter shot at the end when they're <laughs> kind of like yeah. fading away. Yeah, I think at that time that was that. That's what they had to do. Uh, they recorded it, you know, the video very separately. Um, and you know, they obviously went on to do a lot. You know, they did the live album, and you know, I wanted to talk briefly too about uh, Don's solo record he did. You know, up from the ashes, which is another one of my favorite records. And to me, if that if Dawson were still together, that band, that album would have been the, the fifth Dawson album, in my opinion. Um, and I'm sure we'll get a little bit into that, but um, it's just, it's so interesting how that kind of goes fell apart like that. And I mean, obviously that was, so the album came out in 89, if I'm correct. Um, and, you know, obviously that wasn't quite yet at the point where rock was kind of, you know, where this 80s metal period was kind of fading out into alternative and grunge or whatever, but it was on that cusp a little bit. So it's interesting how, you know, they were, they were reaching a point, too, in the scene where a lot of things were a little bit formulaic. And, you know, image was very, very big. And a lot of these things were happening, you know, in the scene in, in general, not maybe not even with, directly with this band, but it kind of all came together. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not even really 100% sure the reasonings behind, you know, why they ended up, you know, kind of going separate ways. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's very, very interesting. And I mean, I love that live album too. And I think that it's, it's a great live record, despite maybe what they were dealing with at the time as a band. Um, you know, they didn't really show in that, that live recording at all. No, I, I think the live album, the live recording was a great recording. I think it's one, it's one of my favorite live albums from that period. And I think Walk Away was a great track too as well. And you mentioned something as we kind of transition yeah. to, you know, post- East from the East and post docking when we go into Up From the Ashes, which I agree with you, is a great album. And I, I do really enjoy it. I also enjoy George Lynch's Wicked Sensation. So both of yeah. these records really were phenomenal. And and George Lynch's Lynch Mob's Wicked Sensation is regarded, to, and at least for me, is one of the great debut albums of all time. Um. There's also a lot going on with Up From The Ashes. I think the song Stay was originally a Dokken song from from demos, I think from the Back For The Attack or Under Lock and Key sessions. I might be wrong on that. That's something that I heard secondhand. So it's really interesting how John Norum was the lead guitar player who ended up being in Dokken for a short period. Um, and Glenn Hughes plays on this. Tony Franklin plays on this album. It's a really great album up from the ashes and then when you go into wicked sensation with mick and george and oni logan on vocals i mean for doc and fans it's a shame that that music could not have been merged together to create to create another doc and record yeah and it's interesting that you know sometimes you see a band you know kind of burn out like that and you know you don't see a lot of the members do uh a lot of things that are just as good as the you know, the band that they came from, you know, in this case, Dokken. I mean, that's not, that's not always the case. You know, you have uh, instances where, you know, people leave a band and they, they go on to do even better things than they did with this original group. But what I think is so interesting is that both Don, yeah, and George were able to put out two records that to me are really, you know, and it sounds like you feel the same way, are really up to par with the rest of the Dokken catalog. And, you know, you got two, two different records and, 
Um, you know, I, I do think that Up From the Ashes deserves a little bit more uh, recognition and praise than it often gets. Um, I love Wicked Sensation as well. Um, I feel like it gets a little bit more, more recognition than Up From the Ashes. Uh, but again, that was also the timing. It came out in 1990 or 91. I don't know why I'm getting this confused on my ears this, this time, but I'm pretty sure it came out in either 90 or 91. And again, I go back to just things were changing and uh, the music you know, obviously genres were changing. So it didn't get as much praise as I think that it deserved. Um, and, you know, it's one of those albums where if you are a Dawkins fan, you know, kind of a major Dawkins fan like we are, or even are really into the scene, you know, I'm sure that you know the album, but the average rock fan um, doesn't really know about it too much. And I mean, I, I just, I love that album. It's one of my, my very, very favorites. You know, Living Alive is one of my favorite songs. They have to say, which, Again, I'm also a big Glenn Hughes fan. I love Glenn. So, you know, he did a lot of writing on that record with Don. Um, there's demos that you can find on YouTube of Glenn singing some of these songs. And, uh, you know, Tony Franklin, again, played the bass line on Stay, which is, you know, love Tony as well. So there's a lot of different, uh, you know, things going on on that record, too. And, you know, you have John Norris playing guitar. Uh, you know, you have uh, Mickey uh, D, who, you know, played, you know, Motorhead and the Scorpions now, of course. Um, Peter Baltus from Accept. You have a lot of different people. It's kind of a, almost, a, I don't want to say super group, but a lot of different, really talented musicians in that in that group. And uh, I always look at it because, you know, John did one more solo record, I think, in the early 2000s. And he doesn't play anything on that album. And I, I did an interview with John back in, at this point, 2018, and we talked a little bit about that, and he just doesn't really do a lot of songs off of that record now. And you know, now he's really the only original member left in, in the you know the Dawkins name. And I've always wanted him to play some of those songs live because I think that it's such a phenomenal record. But he doesn't. I really wish he would because I think that that's just such an underrated record that I wish a lot of more people knew about. Yeah, I'm. I've never really connected with that album. I've never really given it a listen. I know it was. If, if I remember correctly, I don't know if it was actually ever released physically um, on vinyl or CD. Um, it I was don't... released. It was released on vinyl. It was. I think it was just a very, very, you know, not not uh, out for you know pressing for that long. But I know it did get released uh, at the time period because they can. I've been eyeing some used copies on eBay, so I know <laughs> I know it did at one point. The next album that Dakin did was called Dysfunctional, and I love this album. I think this is probably the most underrated album in their catalog, and I do think, you know, obviously the grunge era was happening, and there's a little bit more of a darker sound on this album than there was on maybe the previous albums, but I do love it. I think, you know, songs like Hole in My Head and Too High to Fly Nothing Left to Say, Long Way Home are all great songs. What Price is another one, too, as well. They do the cover of the Emerson, Lake, and Palmer song from the beginning, which was also on One Live Night in their acoustic set. But it, um, it's a great, great album. For those Dockin fans who've never heard it, maybe didn't really give it much thought, I do believe you need to revisit it because I believe it's, it's just as good as Back for the Attack and the, and the other albums prior to that. Yeah, they came back strong on that one, too. Like, there was just a lot of 
it almost felt like whatever they kind of went through, you know, was in the past. They were doing this. They were doing this record, and it's a really strong album. I mean, I know a lot of people know too how to fly. Probably the best off of this record. Um, I know that they, or at least the current uh, version of Dawkins at the time, back when I know Miss Brown was in the band too, they, they played this song very often. Um, it's a great album. And I think that they really got back to where they were before uh, whatever tensions or whatever, you know, the breakup that ended up happening. Um, and it's just, it's strong. And again, we're looking at this as 1995, so mid-90s. Um, obviously, again, another record to me that did not get the recognition that it deserved because of the time and, you know, where, where we were at, you know, at that point listening to Dawkins was it cool, you know, so still get one a little bit unnoticed, um, even still to this day. So I completely agree. If you've never heard this album, I definitely recommend going back and listening to it. It's, I feel like in some instances, a little bit heavier than some of the things that they did in the eighties, obviously. Um, but super, super solid all around. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think, you know, this album went gold, which wasn't a you know is not considered a big seller from compared to what they sold previous to that but having a gold album by Dokken in 1995 is a yeah huge accomplishment and I think that just goes to the quality of the album you know I mean I'm often one that says oh it doesn't matter what the album sales are but the reason why this album sold in the face of grunge like it did is because it's a great album it's because it's really solid yeah, they had a they had a chemistry, and I think that you know it just it really speaks on this record of the fact that they were they had this breakup, they did their own things, and then they came back and they did this record, and it was just as amazing as any of the albums that they've done prior. They just really these four people just had such an amazing chemistry, and it, to me, I, I even saw that they released their um, most recent song you know they all did together back in 2016 when they did the reunion they did um it's another day and even that song you know like they just have such a chemistry when they're all together um that i feel like you know obviously when they do their own things they have their own chemistry with other people and they're, they're all fantastic but it's just it's so recognizable when they all come together and they're all doing the songwriting and they're all working together and i think that that's something that is totally seen on on a dysfunctional because it's just like like I said it's super strong and and to have a gold uh selling record yeah 1995 you know again where it's a lot of people weren't really into listening to Dawkins you know at that point in time it was you know the the uh, 80s scene wasn't something that a lot of people were super passionate about at that point so to have a gold selling record is pretty insane. I think it, yeah, definitely speaks to what they were able to do when they were all working together and writing and creating. And um, obviously, that didn't last forever. As we look at some of the next couple of records, as I think you know, some some tensions did start to come back into whatever their creative process was at the time. But I think that dysfunctional is just like such a a highlight of that you know time period of the band. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the last great Dokken album in, with all four members. Yeah. I, I think this is kind of where you can kind of stop your Dokken collection, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> One Live Night is kind of the celebration that kind of came after that. It was a live recording at the Strand in Redondo Beach, California, which I've been to. Uh, it's you know a small venue, very intimate place. 
And I think that is like the perfect way to end Dokken as we know it. Because after that, you know, Shadow Life was not very good. And I think the band will even say that to you. Erase the Slate, (laughs) you know, didn't have George on it, had Reb. And I think Reb did a good job. But, you know, to me, you know, having a Dokken album without George Lynch is kind of like having a Van Halen album without Eddie Van Halen. Um, it's just, it means too much to the band. And, and, you know, it's nothing against Reb because Reb is an excellent guitar player. But, you know, as, as Dokken moved forward and moved on after that, you know, they had a lot of compilation stuff. You know, they did some live stuff. I think they one of the albums they did was Long Way From Home. Or long, was it uh, Long Way Home, I think it is? Yeah, and, Long Way Home, yep. Yeah, and that is John Norum. And coming back from the Doc and Don Dockin's solo album. So there's been kind of a lot of changes in Dockin ever since then. Mick Brown was kind of the constant along with Don. And then, of course, you know, he ended up leaving um, two years ago or something like that. And, of course, Hell to Pay came out. And, again, John Levin was the guitar player. And I think John played with um, – who did John Levin play with before uh, Dokken? I can't think of the name of the band. Um, oh, um, he played in... Oh, God. Was it Warlock? He played in War and Peace, I'm pretty sure. But wasn't he like in Wait. Warlock or Doro or something like that? Maybe he was. Was he in War and Peace? If I'm... Oh, he was in Doro. No, uh, God, it was Jeff Tolson and Warren Peace. That was, that was Jeff Tolson's band. I thought that he did, um, he might have been, I think he did some work with Jeff Tolson um, at some point. Um, but yeah, he did play with Doro in like the late 80s for a very short period of time. Yeah, so, you know, they, they, I think Dokken has probably released more compilation albums and, and live albums since Dysfunctional than, than studio albums. But, um, yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's disappointing that as a as a Dokken fan, there really hasn't been a lot of closure with them in terms of seeing them live. And gosh, I mean, outside of the shows in Japan and South Dakota, I mean, those are the only four shows or five shows that they've done. And together, gosh, it's got to be twenty some years or over twenty years. So. That's where they're at right now with Dokken. I mean, I know Lightning Strikes Again, I believe, was the last studio album released by Dokken. And, of course, again, the current lineup with John Levin and Mike Brown. Well, obviously, Mick Brown's not on him anymore, but Barry Sparks also played bass on that. Um, so I don't know what the future holds for them. I don't know what what uh, is going to happen. I, I, I tend to think that the Dokken as we know it, and is gone, you know, is, is no longer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard for me because I, I go to see this current version of Dawkins when I can, just because I want to see these songs live. Um, and you know, I I didn't get to experience that, but it's, to me, it's not Dawkins either, especially now with the fact that Nick Brown is gone. Um, to me, it's just kind of a Don Dawkins solo band at this point. Um, and uh, people can take with that what they will. Uh, but that's, you know, it's my personal opinion. You know, we don't have 
unfortunately, I know that, you know, he does own the name and, and that's cool, I guess. You know, it's his, it's his group. He owns it. And, uh, you know, nobody asked Jeff Hill to leave or George Lynch to leave or you know, Miss Brown to leave. But to me, it's just not the Dawkins that I love. It's essentially a John Dawkins solo band. And I think that, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. If I don't know if it should be even called really Dawkins anymore, uh, just because to me it's not what the band originally was. And I mean, I would love to, you know, it's, I'd love to see them do one last record, which I've seen things, you know, come up about this recently in, in, you know, media, rock media and everything. But, you know, they did, like I mentioned, they did that one song, they did the reunion, they did the one song that's another day, and they did the video. And I mean, I think that they have the potential to, you know, really put out one last strong record if they really wanted to, you know, to go, we're going to come back for one record, you know, even if they did it, you know, now, like even now would have been a perfect time, you know, with, with what's going on and having time to do it. You know, Jeff wasn't doing anything with Foreigner and probably would have been the perfect time to, you know, do one last record, you know, have that be whatever is the end for Dawkin, even if John wanted to go on and, and do, you know, shows under this name still with John and Chris and BJ, whatever, you know, I feel like that they really have the potential to do just one last great album, you know, as kind of closure, but yeah, it's, it's really up in the air. I have no idea. You know, I've seen things about, you know, again, Don not really wanting to have a lot of part in that. Um, you know, it's a weird place that the band is in and I completely agree. There never really was any, any closure you know they did those couple of shows and you know that was kind of it there was no talks about anything else they did that song there was no talks about anything else at that point that's um, over four years ago so i mean i'm still holding out hope that maybe we'll do one last thing together but uh yeah it's, it's this current you know in you know incarnation of this band is just personally and i know that you of course kind of feel the same way it's just not what not what i think of what i think of Dawkins. so I, uh, I think of those those uh, five records, you know, obviously I think of that, that Don Dawkins solo record as a part of it, even if you really wanted to. Um, and obviously you have, you know, what what George did with Lynch Mob, which he's, you know, kind of taken that and, and brings it, you know, since, since that initial Dawkins breakup. But yeah, I, I wonder what's to come for them in the next couple of years. It's definitely a mystery. Let's hope. Let's hope it does happen. I I do think, you know, with Jeff, obviously he's doing a lot of producing. I know George and Jeff just released that covers album that they just did, which Yeah, Heavy Hitters. Um, yeah, which I thought was great. They did a lot of different versions of some really popular songs, which is a, a cool thing to do during a pandemic. I know that their the End Machine has a new album on the way, which of course is I don't know if Mick's going to play on it. That's a really good question because I know Mick played on the end machine, the first record with Robert Mason. So I think when I, you know, I think when I interviewed Robert Mason a few months back, he did mention that Mick's brother was playing on it. So that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting to see what, what'll come of that. Um, yeah. And it, it really took me, like I said, it really took me as a shock when he left. Cause I just wasn't, I just wasn't expecting it. You know, he was, he was in the band for the movies in that current, uh, version of Dawkins. And, and then he just left and he took his step back. And, uh, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting. I had no idea that his brother, you know, played drums. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, to even have a little piece of Nick Brown as part of the project, I think it's, it's going to be cool. So, yeah, I'm definitely interested to see what, that, what that's going to end up being like and sounding like, you know. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. George always has the projects that he's doing. I mean, I know he he just did, obviously, last year, the Dirty Shirley album. He's also had the... Uh, oh, the so re- good. Yeah, it was so good. The reimagined Lynch Mob Wicked Sensation album he did. Um, I'm sure there's things that I'm, I'm forgetting as well, but um, he's always looking to stretch his creativity. I know Don, of course, has had the health issues, so... It's kind of unknown what he's going to do and how he's going to come back. Hopefully, through rehab and healing, he's been able to to overcome that. And let's all hope for the best and keep our fingers crossed for Don. Jeff has the commitment with Foreigner, and I'm sure that's a good-paying gig, and it's a hard gig to walk away from. And Mick is a certain unknown just as much as, well, probably Don's probably not as much of an unknown, but Mick, you know, who knows where he's at? Who knows if he's still even playing drums or if he's physically able to do it? You know, people forget he also played with Ted Nugent in between his stints with Docking. So he, you know, he's been playing pretty much full-time for years without much of a break. And drummers who are physical like Mick really do need that. And, you know, maybe he didn't really take care of himself in terms of physical ailments through the years and his feet and his shoulders and, whatever else is bothering him. So hopefully he can come back if Dokken does to at least do a limited number of shows. So hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed with that. But, you know, last question to you, what is your, what do you think Dokken's legacy is? Um, I think that their legacy, at least for me, is, you know, just, one of one of my personal favorite bands of all time but i think that they were a band that you know again like you mentioned definitely didn't get the recognition that i feel like they really truly deserved as a band um and i think that obviously they really were a part of that history of the sunset strip and that you know era of music that I personally love so much, and you do too, and a lot of the listeners that are, you know, listening to this right now are really passionate about that era too. Um, I think that, you know, along with being a piece of that, um, it's, it's interesting because I see that, you know, other people like myself um, around my age uh, are discovered docking and listening to, to those bands and, you know, some of these bands that weren't as big as a Motley Crue or a Rat or... Um, you know, bands along those likes, you know, bands like Dawkins who maybe were almost reaching the top and just missed it. Um, so it's, it's interesting seeing people my age, you know, fellow rock fans like myself who who love that band. And I feel like they definitely, although they didn't get the recognition that they deserved then, I feel like as the years have gone on, um, a lot of people have really started to recognize their greatness and, you know, their their contributions to that scene at that time. Um, you know, whether it was songwriting or, you know, everything that's been, you know, they've, that they've done. And, you know, we're even seeing it now, you know, we look at people in that time period who are still working and putting out new music. And, you know, you just mentioned it, Jeff Tolson and George Winter, two prime examples of people who are, you know, part of that time who are, you know, contributing to newer rock, you know, Jeff Tolson does a ton of different producing and, you know, is, is, amazing with supporting new bands and you know george lynch is you know, did that dirty shirley record which you mentioned which you know, showcased uh regina Zerusik and other new talent you know it's i think that you know they're still making music to this day and they're still you know you know getting their their talents out there with newer newer talent as well and um i think aside from the incredible musical contributions that they had at the 80s and the 90s and 
you know, even some of those early 2000s records, um, I think that, you know, their legacy really will live on and more people will hopefully discover how great they were. And uh, if nobody else does, I will be uh, shouting their praises as long as I'm around. So <laughs> they're, uh, they're fantastic and uh, truly, truly one of my favorite bands. Um, I could go on and on about them forever. So they're just great. If I were to define their legacy, I would say that just as Motley Crue, Rat, Van Halen, and the bands of the 80s define that era, I believe Dokken should be included in that sentence and in that definition. I will never consider them a hair band because, to me, a hair band is a way to diminish the musicianship of those bands from that era. And they were one of the, the top top of the line musicians that formed, formed a band in the early eighties that created some great music that still stands the test of time. There's very few Dokken songs that don't hold up. Most of it does about 80 to 85% of it does. And I think that's a, a tribute to their songwriting, um, to their craft and being great musicians. And I think that will always define their legacy is a great band that did not get their due, a great band that deserves to be considered as part of that movement, just as any of those bands, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Van Halen, all those bands, just because they didn't sell out arenas or be a headliner should not diminish their greatness. And I hope one day they do get their appreciation or the the appreciation they deserve. And hopefully at one point we do see a conclusion, a way to kind of wrap it up and put a bow on their career with a handful of shows, one or two shows, wherever, acoustically or, or acoustic shows, intimate shows. So hopefully we can keep our fingers crossed for that. Yeah, I, I really hope so. Like I said, I always have my fingers crossed for something like that happening. Um, you know, it's, it's, I feel that way about a lot of these different bands that I, I sadly had to miss. And I really, uh, I watched the concerts and I watched the videos and I always wish that I could have been there to be a part of it. So um, I always hope that that'll happen. And I had my fingers crossed, but uh, yeah, man, they're, they're one of my favorite bands ever. Um, I, to me, there's not a lot of bands that really uh, I, I love as much. Um, they that in, have influenced me as much, who have inspired me as much. Um, you know, like I said, Alice Cooper and Dawkins are, are my, my two really really just ultimate ultimate artists and bands so um i hope that yeah as the years go on they their uh, contributions continue to be noticed and uh, i think that like i said that they're starting to be a little bit more recognized for what they did for the scene um and even just having this conversation you know about the few says a lot about that as well so it was really it was really so fun to get to talk to them for talk about them for an hour because you know i could just go on and on about them so Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we will end on that. Sydney, it's been a blast. Like you said, we could talk about docking for many hours into the night, but uh, we'll have to end at some point because I do have to edit this episode. So, um, But thank you very much for doing this. I really enjoyed the conversation. You're, you're always a welcome guest. You're always bring a lot to the table and a great opinion and, and a great presentation on what Dokken was to not only you, but to a lot of people. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a uh, fun to chat, you know, rock music with you. You know, a lot of the time it doesn't even feel like we're recording. It just feels like we're on the phone having a conversation. So 
I'm excited for everybody to listen to this and uh, hopefully share what Dawkin means to them as well. Tell everybody where they can find you. All right. So uh, like Jay mentioned in the very beginning of the episode, I have my own podcast called Metal from the Inside. Uh, you can find us at www.metalfromtheinside.com. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio. Uh, we're also on YouTube. So if you prefer to watch some of your uh, favorite interviews set up, listen to them. We're also available on YouTube. And uh, yeah, just did a great interview with Jill and Turner, Michael Shanker. Uh, we have some cool stuff coming up very, very soon. So like I said, if you love uh, the stuff that Jay does here, I'm sure you would like my content as well. So uh, I'm also on Twitter at Official on Instagram at Sydney Anna Taylor. And I always love to chat rock music with you guys. So if you have any, uh, any fun topics you want to discuss, just feel free to tweet me and I would love to talk to you about it. So that's where you can find me. Go find her, ladies and gentlemen. She's great. She's got great stuff on her, on her websites and on her social media. Once again, thanks, Sydney. I do appreciate it. Everybody, that's Sydney Taylor. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast, now part of Pantheon Podcast, the network of music podcasts. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay warm, and we'll talk again soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 